Would you please join with me in prayer? Come, Holy Spirit. Whatever uh, distractions we have this morning as we come to sit at your feet, Lord Jesus, may they be cast aside so we see only you. The busyness of our week, the hassles of our week, the distractions of our week. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to see you. And we come to meet you and to hear you be empowered to live for you so that we would self-examine our lives and live for you and you alone. For I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout this Lenten season, we've uh, been doing a a series on repentance. You may remember, those of you who were able to be with us Ash Wednesday, one of the things we're charged with is to go into a season of self-examination. Well, here we are. This is the Sunday in our repentance series where we're going to self-examine ourselves, particularly sins. We've been using Dr. G.I. Packer's definition of sin throughout this series to encourage us to know it and to, to be transformed. I've called this series... The, the hidden path or the secret path to the transformed life. And it's not that it's a secret. It's just so few actually get on it. But yet the Christian better be on it. And it separates Christian from non-Christian for those who are. And Dr. G.I. Packer's definition is repentance is turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. All right? So we started off a couple weeks ago talking about what repentance isn't. It's not like Esau beating himself, acting religious, right? Because there was no true transformation in Esau whatsoever for his entire life. And repentance also isn't just a one-time act. It's not something we do just once. It's something we, we continually do throughout our Christian walk, bring ourselves to the Lord. And last week we learned what it was in the person of Job. Job was a blameless man, remember? Absolutely blameless before the Lord, and yet Lord in his sovereign plan brought him to a place where he would recognize, even as well as he's walked with the Lord, the Lord is more beyond us than we can ever imagine, number one. Number two, he's so full of mercy, more mercy than we can ever imagine. That's who God is. He's not the God of the American suburbs, the little, little, bitty God of our own design, which is our own delusions, right? That we can can manipulate God like that grandpa who always will give you the Snickers bar, king size and beyond, right? That's not who God is. No, God is the God of holiness and mercy wrapped up and numbers the hairs on our head. So today we get to the the section where we're going to deal with turning from as much as we know of our sin. Yay! All right. But Jesus gives us a pattern here. He gives us a lot of help in how we might do so. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you're visiting with us, you'll notice it's in the back of your bulletin. For what Jesus is doing is he's galvanizing his disciples to build the kingdom of God. And he galvanizes their attention 
with this absolutely horrifying statement. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in, believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. That was an actual form of Roman execution. Did you know that? All right. Judas the Galilean, an early zealot leader, was executed just like that. A rope was tied around your neck with a great millstone. You went to the Sea of Galilee. They chucked you over. There was enough rope in it to make sure you couldn't get above the water, and you just stayed there until you rotted. So you're a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, and you're fishing. Every time you go past Judas the Marker with the fisher eating his body, you're reminded of Roman authority. Okay? And the, 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 his disciples would have absolutely recognized this. And this is the first thing we learn in this passage. That we need to take the word of God seriously and not turn it into what we want it to be. Because the apostles knew what Jesus was talking about and their imaginations could see the drowned bodies of these victims tethered to these great millstones right under the water, but high enough so passers-by could see them. There's something particularly horrifying about this image. And Jesus uses these most graphic terms to make the point that it would be better to be that person than to be a false teacher of God's word. Woe to the Jim Joneses of the world. Woe to the Joseph Smiths of the world. Woe to the Shirley MacLaines of the world. Woe to the mainline Protestant denominations of the America who take God's word claim biblical Christianity and yet use our sacred vocabulary to redefine the words emptying them of their meaning and thus lead untaught believers astray. To take children astray. Spiritually immature believers astray. It would be better for them to be killed by execution by drowning by a millstone than what awaits them. Jesus is saying. It's a sobering revelation, even to those of us who love Jesus and want to follow him more. Few things disturb Jesus more than causing weak or uninformed believers to sin. And Jesus wants us to understand that before we attack our own sin. Okay? That's the first point. Number one, this is, this is serious. We, we, this is not something we just have to do as followers of Christ. We, we take our sin seriously. And so those who do not take their sin seriously, who stand in the way of the stern discipline of Jesus, it would be better for them to be like that. Do I have your attention? Jesus, that's what his point is. He wants to have our attention. Because now we're going to deal with our stuff, all right? So here we go. And I want to remind us, as we walk through Lent, Lent is the season of self-examination. That's exactly what uh, Jerry read for us in James. He said, 
he's trying to make sure that we're not the double-minded man, verse 6 of James, chapter 1. The double-minded man is the person who comes to church every week, but the culture has no clue that they're a Christian. They say one thing, but they do something else, all right? And he goes further in that chapter to remind people that sin in us is conceived, and if we follow its natural progression, it leads to death. It's like that weed in the spring that pops up, and then in the July heat gets bigger, and you can't control it anymore, right? You know? My neighbor reminds me of my weeds each and every summer. All right? No, we want to get on the path of transformation, and Jesus tells us how we can do that in Mark chapter 9. And he does so by giving us a strategy to keep one's life free from sin by acknowledging it, attacking it, and killing it, all right? Write these down. Acknowledging it, attacking it, and killing it, all right? Verse 43 of chapter 9, Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin. The first thing he wants the reader and, and his disciples to understand is you need to know what it is that is causing you to sin. Acknowledge it. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is to be in the Word of God, ladies and gentlemen, and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and recognizing it. And so, just remember David, who, who fell with Bathsheba, later on wrote in Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light upon my path. As I walk the path of the Lord, he illumines it. And what happens is, as you continue to do that day by day by day by day, you know this to be true. All of a sudden, things you didn't used to think are outside the bounds of the Lord actually are. That's why we're a culture of grace here. Why do you think I do that welcome every, every week? Kind of covers all bases, doesn't it? Because we got people who are strong in the Lord who are just struggling. And we got people who are weak in the Lord who are really struggling. And everyone is welcome here. But this is the natural experience of the Christian. So here are some questions for yourself as you get into the word from Bible study fellowship. As I read the word, ask yourself, is there a promise to proclaim here? Is there a commandment to obey here? Is there a, a sin to confess here in this passage? Is there an example that I'm to follow in this passage? Is there something in this passage that I should be thankful for? All right, just some little five statements and questions you can ask yourself. And over time, as you read, day in, day out, day in, day out, little chunks become bigger chunks, and the Lord speaks to you through the power of his word in your life. So my question to you would be, in thinking about this, how much do you know of your own sin? How aware are you of the workings of your own heart? What are the three most prevailing sins in your life right now? 
Kimmy and I spent Friday night and all day yesterday at the Family Life Weekend to remember. It's a wonderful weekend. I encourage you to take advantage of this. It'll be, be back next year. We do it every year. But I knew as you're at that conference, you deal with your relationship. And I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. I have shortcomings in being the husband that I've been called to be. So I knew this time of confessing my sin to my wife was going to happen. So I figured I'd just cut it off at the pass. All right. So I got to Wednesday and I said, hey, sweetie, what's the one most prevailing sin in my life that you would want me to address? <laughs> and she says, let me think about it. Mm. So I figured she'd come back in an hour or two. Well, it's the next day, you know, 24 hours later. And I said, hey, you know, what would you say is my one prevailing sin that I need to work on? And she said, I need more time. I can't think of them. There's so many of them. <laughs> she also said she knows turnabout is fair play. And she just says, and I don't, I don't need to hear from you. you know? But she also knows that we were going to the marriage conference and iron sharpens iron. And it was a wonderful time. And so thank you for your prayers. But the reality is you need to know what you're dealing with. Own it. If you're wondering, a good exercise is to go back to last week's section in Job chapter 31. Job asks all those questions. He says, I've examined my eyes. I've never even looked gazingly upon a virgin, he says. And he goes through a whole list of things which are good for us, too. Just go back to Job 31. Look at what, how he answers his friends. And see how you measure up. That's a good exercise to do. On top of the questions I said earlier. Because as we get into the scripture, we'll get better at it. It's kind of like doing math. For those of you who, like me, really struggle with math. I really admire you guys and you engineers who are really good at it. Because you had the textbook and there were five practice problems. And you got it by the time you were done with those five practice problems. Last so while my mother brought math drill books, because I needed 30 more, <laughs> you know, and I would go to the teacher, and they'd roll their eyes, okay, Sherman's back again, and I would just say, hey, I don't think I'm doing this right. Yeah, you're not doing it right, and I would just keep drilling myself and drilling myself and drilling myself, and all of a sudden, boom, the light bulb would go off. Oh, that's how it is, and they're all going, duh, yeah. <laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit does with us through his word. But God doesn't say, duh. He goes, yes, you got it. Know your sin. What are they? You don't have to tell me. What are they? And what happens is the light bulb will go off for us as we're in God's word. Second thing we need to do is attack it. Look what Jesus does. He says the absolute necessity for our walk on this path for the transformed life is actually suggesting in, in very drastic terms to remove that sin, all right, by using the metaphor of a hand or eye or a foot. And if you're, verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye 
than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is using these metaphorical terms, ladies and gentlemen. He's speaking of a spiritual mortification. The cutting off of harmful practices that inhibit your walk with the Lord. That have you enslaved. And maybe you don't even realize it. That's why we got to know it first. But the reality is, as we recognize the genre of hyperbole, the hand, the foot, and the eye encompasses the totality of life. The foot is referencing where we go. The hand is referencing what we do. And the eye is referencing what we see. All right? And his logic is absolutely brilliant, isn't it? It's better to clean up our fleeting life with some healthy self-denial, which leads us into enslavement, than to go to hell or an eternal smoking rubbish heap where the worms eternally gorge themselves on the refuge of my life. Any sacrifice, any discipline is absolutely worth it because even lame is abundant life, Jesus is trying to tell us. You see, in other words, you can't be a halfway Christian. There's no such thing. You're either a Christian or you're not. Halfway measures won't do it. There must be a severing, a gouging out of sin if we're going to get on the pathway to the abundant life this way. And there must be a decisive and complete, as serious and as final as a hand, a foot, or an eye being thrown upon the ground. And it further suggests that only you can do this. No one can do this for you. You're not going to ride to heaven on your grandfather's faith or your grandmother's faith or mom and dad's faith. It's you. Only you can do this for yourself. And you can't ride on, on the 20-minute quiet time you had at Young Life Camp in 1977 or 97, or 2015, or walking down the Billy Graham crusade in 1994, or your confirmation, or your baptism. No, it's your present, personal relationship with the living God. And so, the question that Jesus really is asking us in this self-examination of attacking our sin is, where are your feet carrying you? Are you going to the, uh, you have no business going there. Perhaps a social establishment that when you go there after hours involve temptations that you simply can't handle. Your hand, are there habits, activities, that occupy you, that perhaps if anybody knew you were part of them, you'd be absolutely shamed and embarrassed. What are you watching on this? What are you watching on your computer? What are you watching on your TV? What are you listening to? What are you reading? How many chapters of the Bible did you read this past week? 
Where did our minds go when we had no duties to perform? If any of those answers leave us guilty, Jesus says we must go to the extremes to get rid of the offending members, and that's the only ourselves that can do it. That's what it means to attack it, all right? That's our self-examination here. And you might be thinking of that one prevailing sin, Gina, I, I can't conquer this one. I've been trying for years. I can't do it. Well, that's right. In your own strength, you can't, but it's not bigger than the Holy Spirit of God. Don't ever, ever forget that. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He reminds us to kill it. All right? Because it hurts to sever our foot, to tear out an eye. And it hurts to give up the wrong things in our lives, but it's worth it. And this is where the satisfying life in Christ will come in. Some of you remember the movie that was up for the Academy Award a few years ago about the 2003 story of Aaron Ralston. The story was called 127 Hours. He's from Indiana. He was a canyoner. He loved to go throughout the canyons out west. He was climbing in Blue John Canyon in southeastern Utah by himself, where a boulder just fell and trapped his left arm for 127 hours. Do the math. That's over five days. And it was on the fifth day. He did a lot of self-examining during that time when nobody could hear him. He thought he was going to die. But he came to a place where he realized if he were going to survive, he'd have to cut off his arm. And he did. Now, if you were to ask Aaron Ralston today, he's a motivational speaker, he would probably, I'm sure, tell you, I wish I had my arm. All right? But given the choice that he had, he had to let it go. Had to. Had to amputate it so he could survive. It's better, Jesus said, for your blood to be on the ground than your life on the rubbish heap of eternity. And if God is speaking to you right now, ladies and gentlemen, with that one prevailing sin, the Holy Spirit can help you conquer it. Do it today. As we come to the Lord's table, it's the first Sunday of the month, do it today. Lay it at the foot of the cross. The problem is so many Americans do it like Esau. They beat their chest. They come and say, I'm so sorry, Lord. But they really don't get into the word. They don't cultivate their walk with Christ. And that's like trying to cut your, your arm off with a penknife. You'll be there a while, okay? But it's not very efficient. Other folks say, I get it, I get it, and they'll do that, and they take out, this will hurt, but it'll work, take out the buck knife of God's word, all right? That'll work, but what most of us need, quite frankly, is a radical, radical <coughs> surgery, and that's going to take something a little more serious. We're not playing games here. Jesus has reminded us this sin is inhibiting our walk. We need to take 
the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. This is a, just a survival knife. John Rambo, remember that movie? I bought it after that. <laughs> it's got a little compass and all kinds of goodies in the stock. But the point is, this is an illustration of God's word, which will do the job if we will let him. We've got to deal with it, my friends. And the results of our lives when we do that don't stop there. Look, notice what Jesus says. We become as salt to our community. If we will take the word of God and get it right, not make it what we want it to, we attack our sin, we know it, we attack it, we kill it. He says, verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. The key to understanding that phrase is understanding Old Testament sacrifices because Old Testament sacrifices were all salted before they were sacrificed. Salt speaks of sacrifice. So the thought here is that everyone who follows Jesus, every disciple, is themselves to be a willing sacrifice. We've heard this before, right? Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Every one of us are called to be a willing sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it's not my life. It's your own. I give it to you as you wish. Use me. And along with that salt, as we attack our sin, comes fire, it says. That's the Bible's way of talking about suffering. Persecution. If the wind was in Jesus' face, it will also be in ours, and we must embrace it. All right? Paul says to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Bonhoeffer put it very well. He said, Suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. So if we wish to follow Jesus, to deal with it once and for all, we will be salted with fire. But as challenging as that is, my friends, because we live this way across the West Shore, we have a preserving effect upon our, our neighborhoods. William Wilberforce, the man who almost single-handedly brought about the slavery emancipation bill in England in the 19th century, is living proof that a little salt goes a long way. He was not an impressive-looking man. He was, as he got older, he got very frail and sickly, and he wasn't impressive to look at. But when he stood in Parliament and spoke, James Boswell wrote of him, I saw a shrimp become a whale. He was, a, he was like 5'3", 110 pounds, impish, misshapen, because his back was deformed. But he not only brought preservation to his society, but enticed people to know Jesus by his beautiful life. See, if we're salty, those around us will know it. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whether we're in the military, in business, in education, in ministry, in campuses, 
Jesus calls each and every one of us to have a preserving influence wherever we're found. Our presence ought to quicken the conscience. Our presence ought to elevate conversation. Our presence ought to restrain corruption in the office. Our presence ought to promote honesty. Our presence ought to raise the moral atmosphere. What happens when we get to know people who are without Christ? Does our presence make any difference in their lives? Jesus says, yeah, a little salt goes a long way. As long as we are taking the word of God as the word of God. As long as we are knowing our sin, attacking our sin, killing our sin, we will be salt. And Je- this, is, this is profoundly positive, by the way, way to end this. He's just giving it to his disciples and to us as it is. In, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you, you alone are the salt of the world. Jesus believes that despite our frequent failures, we can have a healing, preserving influence in our neighborhoods. He believes in us. Do you? He believes that we can bring flavor to life and that we can make the world a thirsty place for him. And he wants to cultivate our saltiness by his way, not ours. So my friends, let's live in such a way that we don't inhibit or cause any little ones to stumble. We are open, loving, accepting, with lots of grace, wherever people are on their journey with the Lord. Amen? Pointing them to the grace and truth of Jesus. Secondly, we look at our own sin and we say, we're going to know it, we're going to attack it, we're going to kill it. And last, we will willingly embrace the salt of a sacrificial life and the fire that comes with it. And as we do so, my friends, we'll be the salt of the earth to a thirsty world that can only have its thirst quenched by the reality of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that it would be so in our lives. We pray that you would move mightily in and through us as we seek to follow you this way. And Lord God, that in all things, we would look at our own sin, know it, attack it, kill it by the power of the word of God in our lives. And that in so doing, we would be salt. And because of our presence in this community, people would come to know you because they're thirsty for you, the living water. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.